This episode is a tribute to my brother, Michael O'Donnell, who lived a short, difficult, but beautiful and expressive life. He died 12 years ago today, Leap Day, 2024. Maybe just a few minutes before Leap Day, but he was real damn close, and it's close enough for me. And I remember clear as day getting that phone call from my mom that Michael was really sick and going to the hospital, possible kidney infection. And I, at that point, I was very concerned, but it was kind of becoming routine that he was having some fairly big medical issues coming up. His last seven years of life were absolute misery after his near-fatal car wreck, and I'll get into all that. So I'm kind of going out of order here, but bear with me. I got the call that he was sick and heading to the hospital, and then I went to bed, and about an hour later I got a call that he had died. And of course I wasn't expecting that. I knew that things were bad and rough, but I wasn't expecting that. And I distinctly remember driving to the hospital, screaming at God and saying, why the fuck did he suffer the way he did? Why was his life so difficult? He asked you to give him a tap on the shoulder and show him that you were real. And by all accounts, I don't know that, that ever happened. It was my belief he died mostly alone and in despair. But I also know that he had a pretty big change in tune the last six months after him and I had a pretty big heart-to-heart. And I don't credit myself at all for any of that change. I just think that I poured love into him and that it spoke to him. But only out of this just desperate desire to show him how much I cared about him and how much our family cared about him. But we'll get to all that. So I just remember on this drive, screaming to God, swap our places. If he's going to hell for some reason, and there's just all, you know, all the fear talking, but I said, if he's going to hell, then I will take his place. I don't care. I'm sorry to my family, but I can't bear that. And I just remember the whole way there, screaming to God, you better not let him go there. And you better swap places with my soul if that's where he's headed. If I'm even heading, you know, assuming I was going to the right place, my, my mind was so racked by all of the confusing messaging that I really didn't know how to make heads or tails out of any of it. So it was just this extremely upsetting moment of desperation. And then I get to the hospital and I go and I see his lifeless body and it very much felt like a shell. It didn't, didn't feel like him, but I wept over him and said goodbye. And now I believe his, his soul was there watching us, trying to say, I'm okay, I'm okay. Guys, I'm okay. I promise I'm so much better. I'm okay in a way that I didn't remember is possible. And that is so comforting to me to, to just, again, let me assume, okay? I know I don't have empirical tr- truth on that. This is a wish of my heart for my one sibling, my older brother. And I believe, I do believe firmly that he was watching all of us, just wishing so much that we understood how much peace he was experiencing and release from this very difficult life that he had chosen. And now I don't, I don't think any of us deserve 
the pain that we experience here, but it's a process of working our way through the illusion of what we've created. And that's, I, you can listen to the previous, my first episode, I get into a lot more of kind of why I believe it works that way and how it works a little bit, not even in great detail, but in some detail. And I don't pretend to know why my brother struggled as much as he did and suffered as much as he did, but there's a lot of things I can I can see where the lines connect and I can understand. But it was important for me to kind of tell the end of his life before I get to the beginning of his life because I tried to record this already and I just started from the beginning and it was kind of just, it was brutal. It was brutal. It was just pointing out all the, the ways that he had hurt me and that we had struggled to relate growing up and I don't want to get into all those details necessarily because to me they don't define who he is and what he is beyond this experience. Just like I don't believe that any of these pains or struggles that we experience here are define really who we are beyond this. This is a refraction of our true selves. A little bit comes through, but there's a whole lot of ego and energies that are purely part of the earth experience. They're not part of who we truly are. And like I always say, everything I'm going to say in these podcasts is my opinion based on my own collection of information. It is not meant to be gospel truth. It's not meant for you to assume that I have crowned myself as the king of insight and wisdom and knowledge. I'm very much a fool just stumbling his way through trying to let my heart do the talking for once and let it lead me versus fear and ego and all of the old ways that I was addicted to and accustomed to. But we all have to go through that journey organically. No one can just zap us out of it. We have to want to be different. We can't just phone it in. And for me, it took so many devastating turns to want to change and, and make that change. But that's this isn't about me and my story. This is about my brother. I will say that when he died, there was an enormous sense of relief. After I got past the the fear and the, and the guilt of what if he's not going to heaven, I just finally did have to let that go and say, all right, I, God, if you're even remotely good, he's not going to hell, and no one is. I mean, I, th- this was very much in the middle of my constant and long struggle with my faith. And my brother had really never grappled onto it, and I understand now why. But for me, it was just like this, there is no sensibility or wonder or awe to a creator that would make a creation that was designed with all of these limitations in its understanding and then punished for that eternally. Like, how could you possibly ascribe that to this endless love and boundless grace and all these other things that people also like to say on the same breath that they're talking about eternal punishment and damnation for, again, finite crimes that are poorly, poorly, poorly articulated in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, which is just rife with every hallmark of the culture, misogynistic, barbaric, you know, you talk about Yahweh and every single negative aspect that you would ascribe to a 
a tyrant of power here on this earth is ascribed to him. Jealousy, rage, anger. But somehow we, we twist it into, oh, it's righteous rage, it's righteous anger, it's righteous jealousy. Show me where that plays out in this earth, where there's ever a righteous case to, to kill your brother or sister. There is never a righteous reason to slaughter each other. Anyway, this is an episode about pacifism and all that. It's just about untangling this deeply confusing web of, of lies, propaganda, culture, fear, ego, mixed in with what I believe is a undercurrent of truth. And in so many different holy books and scriptures, there is an undercurrent of a very similar message, but it constantly gets trampled by our need to assign power structures, ego, all of the forms we were used to. And my brother saw through all that. We were born in Statesboro, Georgia. So my brother was born in 1981, and I was born in 1982. He was born on January 30th. I was born on August 10th, so we had about a year and a half apart. And that was kind of just the perfect age to, I think, for him to be like, what is going on? He wasn't a big fan of having something else in the house that was getting more attention. And there's a lot of reason to believe he may have had some level of Asperger's or autism because there were just a lot of things that kind of disconnected for him on an emotional level where he would he would see me as strictly competition and not as a brother to protect and nurture. But beyond that, there were definitely some other signs. He had a really hard time being on time to anything, picking up any social cues. He just had a lot of kind of what we considered at the time as black sheep traits. So we really didn't know what was going on. My parents, I think, just assumed it was somehow more defiant spirit from Satan coming through or whatever, you know, whatever spiritual battle was happening versus a chemical difference than the average person. At the time, I took it very hard because I didn't know as a little kid who was trying to view this beautiful world that God created as readily available for us to embrace goodness and it's so easy to defeat evil and all these kinds of, you know, very simple ideas in my mind. And then I had my brother there to kind of like beat out of me all of that wonderment and be like, no, you're kind of a piece of shit and I'm going to make sure you know it. And now I know that so much of that is projection and acting out of your own conflicted feelings. But when you're a kid, you don't know that. You just assume this this sibling of mine, this older brother who I look up to because he's my older brother, thinks that I'm pretty worthless and that most of what I do is insufficient and lacking and foolish, and he would call me dense all the time growing up, naive. And I just developed a very, very poor self-image based on that. And now I have such a new perspective, we'll get into that. But I also realized the double whammy of he was getting the same messaging as me that were inherently sinful, without repentance or going to hell. And that just makes you, as a kid especially, see anything you perceive as bad or wrong as evil, Satan, sin, you know, and it's really an easy way to quickly, dramatically lower your opinion of your friends or siblings. So I can't blame him entirely for this whole you're worthless vibe. I got that both from him and from Sunday school because they love to tell you more than anything that you're a filthy sinner worthy of hell. You better beg for forgiveness and hope that he saves you. 
Yeah, again, I can't imagine why my self-esteem has suffered so much. But getting back to our childhood, we grew up in Statesboro from the ages of seven and nine until we moved to Washington State. So from the ages of, till me, seven, and him, nine, we were in this very, very small insular environment where our church was also our school. And for the first couple of years of my life, my education was, well, was homeschool and then the Bible school that was part of the church. And then by the grace of Creator, I was moved to Washington State, the promised land. When I was seven years old, my dad and mom at the time were going through a very difficult period in their relationship, as many do with children of seven and nine. It's actually, I think, usually the typical, the, the average divorce age in the relationship is something like seven and a half years. So most people who are having kids right away, their kids are seven, eight, nine. So they were going through their difficulties there. My dad moved out to Washington State a couple months before we moved out there, and he was doing construction. And when we moved out there, he had just gotten a job shortly after that at a computer sales place, and he hated that. They were just trying to start a new life away from their familiar surroundings in the South. And you know what? Hats off, because it takes a lot of guts. And I remember distinctly when we moved there, just being blown away by the fact that the these roads had all these lanes on them. I didn't even know what it was about. I just remember freaking out, being like, Mom, what are all these things on the road? Lanes. And I probably told this story already. It's hard to remember how many times I've recorded and deleted stuff. So if I do repeat things, I apologize. That's just also how my brain works. But my brother and I both were still kind of in this Christian bubble, even though he had clearly expressed a lot of typical older brother bully vibes, which again, I, I understand is, it's not uncommon. You know, he the way he treated me was not some insane anomaly. It was just personally painful. And I know it was painful to him to see me be able to socialize easy and, and kind of be able to make friends and have an easier time with that element of life, whereas he was very kind of brooding and introspective, but brilliant, just didn't know how to really relate to people as easily as me. And so he had all this jealousy built up that I had no idea about until years later. And I had all this jealousy built up for him that eventually kind of fell away when I saw through some of the you know reasons for it. But I also now look up to him in a way I never could have before because he, he was such a key proponent of my change but we'll get to that later, his story. So Michael was definitely a bit on the neurodivergent side, but again, just a brilliant mind, really, really private, but brilliant. He did have a lot of the same traits as my grandpa, who was on my dad's side, who I really didn't know until he had had several strokes. And at that point, my only memories of him were going to nursing homes and he couldn't really speak. We would take him out to dinner. He couldn't really speak. He would chain smoke, eat junior mints, and be generally unpleasant to be around. He he got released from one nursing home for punching a nurse, and I think he got you know released from another one for biting uh, another patient. He just was not happy at all to be in that condition, dealing with all that. And my brother was very much like him, not a fan of being imprisoned in his own body, obviously. I think that was his biggest fear in life was 
he always said, I, I'd much rather die than be disabled. And man, I, it still haunts me that that was some, something he would say often, and it ended up being his life. All right, so back to Washington State. We move out there. My brother and I had really never been exposed to much pop culture or things outside of the church. So we moved to this apartment complex, and all of a sudden, we're meeting all these people who, you know, kids who are swearing, their parents are smoking and doing drugs, they're letting them play video games and eat junk food whenever. You know, it felt like a free-for-all that, to my little Christian mind, was absolutely terrifying. I remember just going into, like, missionary mode, like, I gotta save these poor people. So I would just ask kids if they needed to pray with me. I would go behind the the parking garages. You know, they'd have these individual parking garages, and I'd go back behind them. There was a little space between the fence and the, the manufactured garages, and I would pray with these kids and ask to have their souls saved. And, you know, there was a couple kids that were really actually, I think, appreciated the attention in a positive way, but most of them understandably were like, nah, dude. And I was so hurt for the world because I realized that I had kind of had the wool pulled over my eyes a little bit, not because my parents were being sinister and trying to, you know, shield me from stuff that I probably needed to be somewhat shielded from, but just because I had assumed so many things about the world operating a certain way, and it was like, to my seven-year-old brain, it just, I still have so many distinct memories of that experience. And again, like so many things at the time, it felt like it could be the most traumatizing thing to me for the rest of my life. And now I'm like, thank source I had the, that experience. Because without it, I wouldn't be at, at the point I'm at. If I had stayed in my little bubble, chances are it would have taken me twice as long to claw my way out. So my brother was such a catalyst for just challenging the status quo and what was being kind of fed to us. Because his mind just filtered kind of through what he perceived as disingenuous and latched onto what kind of resonated. But he also resonated with a lot of darker stuff as a reaction, I think. In his mind, if you're going to tell him you can't explore, look at that, think about that, he's going to go, why not? Let me find out why you're saying that. I don't just believe you. I need to experientially understand why that's actually a bad thing. But in Michael's case, he was constantly being told, you're wrong, you're different, you're dark, you're inspired by evil, Satan might be whispering in your ear. You know, all this messaging that his interests were fueled by darkness and I think just kept feeding that sense of isolation and despair in him. And so socially he was very withdrawn. He had a very hard time in school with both teachers and and friends. And he began to act out in more and more destructive ways. He be- became more violent with me if I dared to upset him or confront anything in him, he would usually retaliate in a fairly overtly disproportionate way. So for example, he would often just punch me. We'd be sitting there watching something and he just would stick a knuckle out and give me the best dead arm he could, which would always leave a big old fat bruise on my arm. And if I tried to hit him back, even just like lightly, he would take it as a great offense and he would just start to like unload on me. This happened enough early on that I learned to just not hit back. So I just was constantly arms and legs bruised up because he was giving me dead legs and dead arms for years, you know. And then just, it was always stuff like 
he would get VHS tapes for Christmas, and then he'd use them to tape Saturday Night Live, and then he would charge me money to watch his taped recordings of Saturday Night Live. <laughs> oh, man, he would hustle me all the time. He just, like, he knew how naive I was, and he would exploit it. He would bet me in, like, video game competitions that he knew I would lose. And then when I would beat him, he would accuse me of being cheap and cheating like every single time. And sometimes I would, like, exploit a game, you know, where I found, like, like Mortal Kombat. Just do the leg sweep over and over and over. And I would, like, beat his friends at the arcade, just, like, cheesing out on an exploit. And they'd be like, you're a cheater! I'm like, I'm just doing what the game allows. Um, but in many cases, he would take me for a ride, man. And now, like, I can kind of laugh at it, right? Because it's like, damn, he was slick, you know? He was, he was working his angles, but... It, there's also a pain in that because I realized that he felt this competition with me. Like, he couldn't see me as an equal. He saw me as a competition for attention and certainly mom and dad's affection. He would get the lion's share of the blame for anything. Even if I was complicit in the same thing, they would tend to go harder on him. And I think part of that's because, you know, he's older brother. He's supposed to be setting an example, so they would kind of make him the martyr. But that led to some very, very, very tumultuous situations and there was a lot of shouting and definitely during the high school years a few physical altercations between my dad and my brother one that I distinctly remember just weeping in my room and begging for God to stop it because I had heard some really loud noises and what sounded like someone being tossed down the stairs it was about that bad and thankfully there was no severe injuries or anything but it was pretty ugly and this was a, when my brother was like 16 and just he was raising hell I'm not here to defend my dad for laying hands on him in any way but I don't I wasn't there either I don't know what my brother did he might have laid hands on my dad first it's not really something I'm I care about who was at fault it doesn't matter it was just so there was so much anger and tension because my brother was just going so hard against the grain of what they were trying to instill in us and it still breaks my heart that they had that inflexibility about them, but they also were doing the best they could and just felt like, what the hell, man? Like, we're giving you all that you need. Why are you fighting us? So I get it from both angles, for sure. But on my end, I was just traumatized and devastated. And it really harmed my view of both of my dad and my brother. So my brother got to a point where he was acting out in such a negative way, he was building explosives. I was helping him make napalm at one point, trying to help him make saltpeter, which involved boiling. Oop, this is insane. His ass had me go to the grocery store with him, and I say this lovingly, but his ass had me go to the grocery store with him and buy like 12 bottles of hydrogen peroxide to then boil on a stovetop under an open flame, essentially, in, you know, big pots. And the lady working there was like, what are you guys doing with all this? I don't know if I can sell you this. And we're like, well, our mom said we needed it. She's like, okay. Like, we're not going to drink it. We're not stupid. You know, we tried to be smart about it and, like, say, we know, how, we know we're going to poison ourselves if we drink this. We're not doing that. We're, this is for our mom. She needed it for cleaning. And the lady's like, um, all right, well, I guess I can't not sell it to you. You know, this is like early 90s. And right in the final step of this, like, 12-hour process, my parents come home from their pinochle tournament or whatever they were doing, and they were horrified, of course, that I was aiding and abetting my brother and making some sort of explosive. 
So that was kind of the beginning of the end. And then the end of the end was when they found one or two pipe bombs under his bed. Fully assembled pipe bombs ready to ready to blow. I still don't know to this day what they did with those pipe bombs. I really hope they had a bomb squad remove them. I believe that was the case. But the next morning, maybe it wasn't the next morning, shortly after that, my parents had rapidly pulled a plan together, had the money come together very unexpectedly. One of those things that I believe was definitely a meant-to-happen, you know, things in motion beyond just the physical to help facilitate that for him because his life was in jeopardy. He was going down a very, very dark path. He was going to become a school shooter or a school bomber at the rate he was at. And I don't really say that lightly. You know, he wore a lot of black trench coats and kind of idolized people like Eric and Dylan after that happened, I think. But you know what? Scratch that. I don't remember him specifically idolizing. And actually, I specifically remember him talking shit about Eric and Dylan because he, my brother was a huge fan of Marilyn Manson. And at the time, there was this talk that Eric and Dylan were inspired by Marilyn Manson to do the school shootings or some other... It might have been another band, but I'm pretty sure it was Marilyn Manson. And my brother was like, they freaking hated Marilyn Manson, dude. They they were into, like, Jean-Claude Van Damme movies, like Bloodsport. They just liked senseless violence. They were dumbasses. Like, I don't think my brother respected them at all, actually. So, completely recant that memory. I think he just... I think there was an element, though, of, hey, they took shit into their own hands and they said enough, but... Clearly, my brother wasn't at a point where he was ready to commit violence on a bunch of innocent people. But he was looking for, I think, a target for his rage, for sure. Building pipe bombs, you don't really do that unless you have an objective to hurt somebody or property. And we did damage some property in our time. Not extensively, but we did some minor property damage with our homemade napalm. And thank God no one was badly hurt or anything like that or I would not be confessing this right now. But some very stupid things happened with him, and he put me in a lot of danger. And at the time, I was just like, it was fun. It was visceral. It was exciting. Now I'm like, holy shit. There was definitely our higher selves were watching over us, and not because we, you know, I, I, again, there's no justice in that in a way that, like, you know, somebody's higher self is somehow better because it protects you from one thing and, and another's is worse because it lets you die in a tragic way. We're all on our own journey. We're all experiencing the things that we need to experience for our soul growth. So our protection during those times was not because we were special or our higher selves or whatever were interceding for us in a profound way because of some sort of entitlement, right? That's not how I'm looking at it. It's just that wasn't our journey to die building explosives, because I guess, well, for me, I can see why. My life's been a complicated but beautiful poem of love and sacrifice, and I would never trade my family in a million years. And if I had died building explosives with my brother, I would never have this beautiful family and all these experiences to draw from to help hopefully someone else out there relate, identify, find some comfort, camaraderie. Anyway, so back to explosives. After the pipe bombs, my parents were pretty concerned that he was in a point of no return, and so they made a bold action, which I, I still believe was the right choice. And I'm thankful that they found the right place because there's been a lot of other horror stories from similar 
camps and ranches not far from this location in Escalante, Utah. So they sent him to this place called Turnabout Ranch, which was the polar opposite of anything he had ever experienced before, that's for sure. So my dad drove him to the airport one morning when he thought he was going to school, shortly after the pipe bomb discovery, and I was, of course, shocked, but also relieved that he was hopefully getting some help, because I was very concerned about my safety and his safety, and my family's safety. I mean, he could have killed all of us with the pipe bombs. I don't think he would have done it intentionally, but he could have definitely done it on accident. So he goes to this ranch, he sits in a dirt circle for three days. I mean, he's getting food and water, but you sit in a dirt circle for three days and you just have to think about why you're there. And that's like the, the three days of hell, of course. And especially if, you know, the kids are addicted to anything, that's, they got to keep close tabs on them too, of course. So thankfully he, uh, he made the best of that experience. When we came out to visit him at the halfway point, it was a three month thing. He looked, sounded, and acted completely different in all positive ways. Like, I would have been very upset if we went out there and he was dejected, you know, more isolated, more traumatized. But he was, like, assertive, happy, physically fit. He had a nice tan. You know, he was working out in the sun, getting exercise, but getting fed well, getting counseling. It was a good program for someone like him who really just needed a hey, you know, snap out of it. People love you, and try and love yourself a little bit here. But I do believe there was a Christian influence or overt Christian messaging, I'm not sure. But either way, he came back home, and he didn't build pipe bombs anymore. Didn't stop his fascination in the more dark elements of life, the the countercultural elements, the things that get buried under the gloss and sheen of kind of the false veneer of our society. He was always into the underbelly, and I, I respected that so much as I aged because people need to explore all of the extremes to understand, again, why why are we choosing what we choose? And when we finally get back to love, why are we so much more drawn to it after going through all of these difficult and dark experiences? That's And that's a speculation, but I believe that the whole thing works by design that the more we explore darkness, the more we crave a return back to peace, safety, and our original state. But we'll never, again, never go back to that original state. We'll always come back with so much more after these experiences. Everything bad that happens to you in these lives is filtered out. This is getting way into some other stuff, but just real quick, that's one thing from A Course in Miracles that has been consistently just singing to my spirit that the atonement is something that we all experience. And it literally is, you break down the word, the at-one-ment. We all become completely as one, and all of the ego, pain, and experiences that were difficult, frustrating, and illusory here are filtered out. And all of the moments where the spirit and love and goodness came through from these experiences remains. And so you take this distilled, perfect experience back to your source and the atonement is just the process of washing off all of the the grime and just refining it into this beautiful tapestry of experiences that you've learned all of these new things from and then from there I believe we're able to create new entire worlds possibly based on now knowing what is what is the highest and best thing to create and what is just not worth our time anymore 
That's my speculation. I don't know how things work after the atonement. I don't really fully understand the atonement. I just understand that we all gravitate towards there and we all have every opportunity and will inevitably wash off all of the bullshit from these lives and just be this glowing, radiant, magnificent being of radiating pure love energy, just light love energy that that transcends any understanding we could really have about what that means. And this sounds really biblical and evangelical, and I don't want to get all frosty yet. I just, I like to think about the pain in my brother's life being contrasted with all of the brilliance on the other side of it. Like, I, I, I really think that's another element, too, is like the depths of your pain on the other side of that will be levels of joy that far exceed in, in a way that's not even comparable that pain. So if we start to embrace that, can you imagine how much things change here? How much fear you release when we realize that our lives are are not this desperate survival trip, but they're actually just about enjoyment? And if we focused on living instead of surviving, we would live far richer lives. But as far as my brother's concerned, he gets back from this camp in Utah, a changed young man. He's 17, I believe, at the time, and just had a really positive trajectory towards going to Seattle Art Institute. But Seattle Art Institute was definitely a step in kind of a sideways direction for him. Wait, actually, it's Art Institute of Seattle, but my brain conflated it with another school. But come on, potato, potato, right? Now, he did he did a really great job with digital artwork and photography in its early days. He won an award. I had the artwork right here sitting in front of me of an article with him. This He used like a sock monkey puppet and like a jalapeno and all these other random elements and made this face, and he put it together digitally. And at the time, that was pretty cutting edge. It was like 1996 or something. And so he got this award where he got to meet the governor of Washington State, Governor Gary Locke. And we got to go to this really fancy ballroom and he got the award and it was a nice dinner. It was really cool for him because he just he he beamed and radiated like pride in that moment because someone was recognizing how cool his art was and it was he wasn't getting the usual kind of furrowed brows from my parents and God love him. But you know, at this point they had seen some of his really really dark artwork and they had a hard time feeling like they weren't encouraging that in some way by encouraging his art, but they were very proud of him for this event. I remember they weren't, you know, gloomy or or acting sour about his big moment. So that was, it was really more of about their whole gripe with how this might affect his soul. You know, it always tied back to our faith or what we were being raised on, I should say. And so a lot of his stuff got confiscated. And Anyway, we don't need to get backtracking all that, but this was a moment where he really got to embrace his abilities and his uniqueness. And it was really cool to see, but he never really quite was able to achieve art in a commercial way. I think he saw how difficult it was to make money making art, and he didn't really want to be a hustler. He kind of wanted to just create from the heart or else forget it. So he didn't really stick with his full schooling. He ended up coming back home, and then, well, I don't think he even really came home as much as he figured out a place to live with some friends, and he basically moved around different houses after that point all the way up until his accident. 
So fast forward a few years, I go off to colleges, <laughs> a Bible college that was a very failed experience, a very short tenure, four months out of the nine months I was going to be there. Um, I rage quit Bible school is pretty much the best way to describe it. But after that, I went to Full Sail University in Orlando and got my Associate of Science in Recording Arts, which was the highest degree they had back in 2002. Yes, it was a long time ago. And I took that with me into a recording job out in Washington State. And the plan was to work with this engineer that I had played drums on an album he had engineered and produced, and he was promising me all this stuff. I know I've talked about this in the first podcast, or at least I'm pretty sure I did. But he had promised me all these, you know, lavish things like a, a multimillionaire was going to build him this studio. And I guess that was like a very faint possibility, but he made it sound like it was rock solid. So I moved out there expecting full-time work in the studio. And I get there and he goes, oh, by the way, I'm flipping houses uh, as my like main thing now because studio work's been sporadic. So I was spending most of my time knocking out asbestos-filled walls in crappy old houses instead of doing recording. So after six months of that and just hemorrhaging my savings, I had to get a real job. And But it was shortly after I got married in 2005, the first month of our marriage, that my brother had his car accident. It was, was it the day before his birthday? I believe it was the day before his birthday. I just talked to him a couple hours before the accident, and he sounded fine, just tired, but that accident changed everything. He was driving home late after not having slept enough the last two days. He worked a late shift at Pizza Hut where he was a delivery driver, or as he lovingly called it, Pizza Slut. <laughs> he didn't quite love the old hut there um, at the end, but they were also very gracious with him because he was consistently like 45 minutes late because he lived a really long ways away, and he was just notoriously late anyways his whole life part of the, I think, Asperger's element. But he was driving home after a shift, and he had gone to a bar to have a beer or two to celebrate his birthday the next day or whatever, and I just remember talking to him and like, all right, man, be, be safe. Don't drink too much. He's like, no, 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 I'm just having like one beer, two beers, tops, and then I'm, you know, driving home. And then the next call I got was from his friend saying, Mike's in the hospital, and it's really bad. And this accident had happened eight hours before I got the call because he didn't have the proper emergency contacts in his wallet. And also, the I mean, the scene was just so chaotic anyway. So what happened was at about 2 a.m., he's driving home from the bar, and he's not too far from his house. And I can still remember the road clear as day, coming around a corner, two-lane road. And on the if you're the direction, well, it didn't matter which direction. There was a giant 30-foot embankment off of one side with a bunch of trees and some standing water, like a little, just standing water from rain. It wasn't any, like, kind of, you know, pond or lake, really. But he was going around this corner, and he lost consciousness. We think he just fell asleep. He was tired. It was late. He had a few beers. He probably just drifted off. Easy to happen. It's been very close calls for me on a couple occasions back in my youth. And so he lost control of the car. He slid off the road, and as he was sliding off the road, he hit the concrete curb that was on the edge of the road to protect people from going into the embankment. And by hitting that curb, it actually popped his car into the air, and it started spinning. And as it was spinning through the air, going down an embankment 30 feet up in the air, 
it cracked a tree in half on the sunroof side of the car. So my brother's head essentially made direct contact with a tree that was cracking in half as the car was hitting it. And the compression from that pulverized several vertebrae in his back, broke his neck very badly, left a huge gash in his head and his hand that was bleeding profusely. And the only reason he survived, and I know he often said he really wished he didn't, was because an off-duty firefighter just missed a call to the station. And he was coming back home, and he noticed there was a tree down and some lights in the road where he didn't see it before. So he went and inspected and saw my brother's car. And I mean, the car was not even pancaked, it was inverted. I have pictures that I've since deleted because they're just too fucking traumatizing to look at. His car was not... It didn't look survivable in any possible scenario because it was crushed inwardly where he was freaking sitting. So the fact that he was submersed upside down in water while having his back and neck crushed, it just he shouldn't have survived. So it took an hour to cut him out of the car. And when they got him to ICU and I got there, they said he was the sickest patient they had in ICU, which is the last thing you want to hear. It's almost a certain guarantee of death and he was on the verge of death for the next month and a half every single day was a new horror he had rare bacteria in his lungs from the pond scum that he was somehow breathing in while he was upside down and slightly immersed in water they had rarely seen this type of bacteria so he was going septic his lungs were constantly shutting down and closing up and getting I mean, just he just had so many horrendous injuries and trauma to his body. Just the toxins they said released in his body from the trauma would have killed him if he was just 10 years older. And for the next month and a half, he barely survived. He looked like a terrible science experiment. He had every tube and machine hooked up to him. I still remember those pictures. And I was there every single day with my new wife, Lisa. Every single day, she sat there by my side as in a new state with her new husband dealing with this very intense trauma for three months straight. And that definitely was a huge challenge to our relationship early on. And I remember her kind of at a certain point being like, I know this is extremely difficult and hard, but I, I'm your wife and I need a little attention too. And I was kind of incredulous. This is my brother, you know, but I really was so laser focused on his survival that I was neglecting my wife. So like all things in life, it's this complicated balance of juggling all these things that you're, you know, you think you're doing something good and then you've completely forgotten something else that's important. But Lisa was very patient through all of that and very gracious. And once my brother got into rehab, he finally started to make some significant improvement in his cognition. He basically was so drugged up and his sleep was so interrupted in the hospital that he could not really progress with his healing or having any kind of lucid conversation with him. There was so much morphine and other drugs in his system. He was You would talk to him, and it would sound like he was perceiving you, and then he'd just start hallucinating and freaking out, and his heart rate would go way up, and they'd tell you to leave. It was very upsetting. So when he was in rehab, it, he started to kind of wake up to the fact what was going on and what had happened, and he was very dejected obviously, to find out that he would probably never walk again. And the brain injury definitely changed his communication 
speed and you know he did have a brain injury from that so he was certainly altered from that point on but he retained a lot of memories and a lot of his personality just had to kind of go through this extra difficult layer of problems and again somehow he managed to survive for the next seven or eight years in this very difficult place of how do I even move forward with my life and he suffered so many extremely devastating experiences after that car accident if the car accident wasn't bad enough it was all the things that happened afterwards now granted my parents had dropped everything in Savannah where they were running a new coffee shop to come out to Washington and and be by his side and to see to everything they could see about and when he was finally ready to move back with them they moved him to Savannah and they began to build a wheelchair accessible apartment for him in the back of their house and so it was very hard for him to adjust to living in Georgia again he really didn't like it here and his girlfriend at the time who really tried to stay by his side he he had lost contact with her he didn't feel like he had anything to offer her even though she loved him very much and wanted to still be by his side so I know that was devastating for her too and I should point out that this was his girlfriend in Washington State so when he moved to Georgia she did not come with him for obvious reasons she had her family back home they owned a Vietnamese restaurant oh Lan was such a sweet girl I've never met someone just with such an open heart but she was so perplexed by my brother. I remember her asking me one night when we stopped at like a convenience store and it's like, I don't understand your brother. <laughs> He's so confusing. And I'm like, yeah, I trust me on that. I, I'm right there with you, Lan. So, but she was just such an open, beautiful heart and she hated not being able to be there physically with him after the accident, after he had come to Georgia but that was just the reality of it so that was part of the reason they lost contact so easily as well and then the really 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 hard thing was a few years after that she drowned in a tragic accident on a lake with her family she couldn't swim and she was trying to jump onto a raft and slid off the side and they never saw her again and um he didn't speak to anyone for at least a month after that happened. And at the time, of course, I had somehow convinced him into going to a Bible study with me at our church. And it was more like a teaching thing versus a preacher thing. You know, it was actually like, here's the original, you know, Greek and Hebrew, and here's the meaning of these words in that language. And it was a lot more informational than it was like some really charismatic messaging. So I kind of thought he'd be more into it, and he was. But then his girlfriend drown and he just said fuck god basically like if god exists he's clearly here to torture me and to make my life a living hell understandably he felt very victimized by life it seemed like all these ways he was trying to express himself and be were just being condemned judged cut down and the poor guy was just like what what am i supposed to do how am i supposed to move forward and i wish we knew so much more about asperger's and autism then and we're able to know the signs and symptoms more clearly because we could have gotten a lot more help for him and been so much more understanding of how he is. But he was put through the exact same expectations as anyone else. And anyone who's gone through that themselves will know in a way I could never articulate or know how difficult that is. And 
yeah, we're, we're all on these very intense journeys that have very different lessons for each one of them. And that's why there's a beauty in that. We're not consigned to these one terrible set of experiences. Like my brother has surely had lifetimes of immense enjoyment and pleasure and able-bodiedness. And then beyond this, we all have that promise of disconnection from the pain and struggles of the ego and the physical form. That's just a teacher for a short time. It actually does take kind of a long time ultimately, but in the grand scheme, it's a short time of our whole journey. We get so much more time in the spirit, in the heart, creating out of love, but we have to learn why, again, creating out of love is the highest good we can achieve, and not even that we achieve, that we just remember, we reflect back what we already are. And so my brother had, getting back to just how things unfolded for him, he had a really difficult time in the last year with a lot of acute health problems, some abuse of different medications that would, you know, work for certain things. Like, so he was taking cough medicine a bottle at a time because it was the only thing that helped his nerve pain. But anyone who's done that before knows that it's a disassociative, it's associated with hallucinations. And so he would have a lot of like falling out of his chair and hitting his head and a lot of injuries and stuff as a result of just how disassociated he was. The poor guy just was so out of sorts that like, I remember my parents were gone for a week and I came to stay with him. And this was a few months before he died. And he would go to the, he would go to Walmart and spend hours shopping. And when he would come home, he was so exhausted that he would fall asleep in his car with all the groceries in it. So like I had to, a couple times, I had to like help rescue all of his groceries before they all melted because he was just so, his body was just so shot, but he wanted so badly to be independent as much as possible, understandably. So it was just such a, God, it was such a fucking struggle. So painful for him. And he was really upset that I was going to end up helping him deal with some like issues he had with going to the bathroom and having complications and helping him clean his clothes and things like that. He was super embarrassed. And I was like, man, I just remember like tearing up and being like, you don't need to be embarrassed for one damn minute. This is your life. And I hate that this is what you have to experience. And I am more than happy to help you just a little bit, man. But then we had a very, very long heart-to-heart, and I was trying to just assure him that he had a perfect healed body waiting for him on the other side of this torturous experience, and that he didn't need to pray for forgiveness or repentance, that he had already done that in the past. He'd already made his sinner's prayer, and at the time, that was still what I believed is necessary. And so I just was trying to speak love into him. I was like, you're, you know, he had all these ideas in his head after spending all this time in his apartment on all these different drugs, just kind of in a circular logic that my mom and dad didn't want to have us, that we were mistakes, that I was, and I was about to have my second child at the time, and he was convinced that was going to destroy our family and I wouldn't be able to handle the stress. And he just had a very, very dark and negative slant on everything. And I just kind of try to be like, man, I know how little I can speak to you about what you should believe or think about anything because I'm not in your shoes. I haven't experienced what you've experienced. So please take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. And then I just tried to tell him as best as I could that I believed he only had good things to look forward to beyond this life. That it was pretty clear to both of us that he wouldn't have much longer to live. He was having, at the time, a a spinal infection that was pretty serious and concerning. And that was kind of what prompted him to ask me about a lot of spiritual things that we hadn't really discussed in a long time. 
because I never felt right in being evangelical to him during that time because I was sensitive to his situation. I knew how it would come across having his younger brother be like, here's what you need to do to feel good about life. Here's what you need to do for answers. And telling that to someone who's in his position is really, really insulting, belittling, and usually has the opposite effect of what you're asking for or what you're hoping for. So he he was really open to, let's talk about it. I, I'm here for it. And I just said, man, you know, I, I don't think you need to have all the end-time Bible stuff figured out. Just trust that you're saved and always saved. And I just kind of ran with that. And then from there, I just tried to dispel some of the ideas he had had about the whole thing with my parents not wanting either one of us and me being miserable, having another child, and all these things that he was getting worked up in his head. And I was like, no, man, mom and dad love you so much that they dropped everything with their business and ran out to Washington. They saw about your care every single day. They worked tirelessly to get the finances worked out and all these other things. They built an apartment for you. Yes, they have a hard time relating to us because they're still trying to push us down this path that they were told is the only path, the only good and proper information they can share. So to share anything else would be a disservice to their creator. I get that there's a lot of pressure that they've put on themselves to stay consistent to this message, but it doesn't mean that they don't love you beyond that. They're just, we're all acting through the pain of the ego and the confusion of this present illusion we live in. So the really remarkable thing was that after we had this talk and we talked for hours my parents would say stuff like, he's been really, really positive when he's communicated with us. He's been saying, thank you, and I appreciate you, and I love you. And that just blew my mind. That was confirmation at the time to me that, that the God of the Bible was working in him and that he used me to speak a message to him. And now I have a, a slightly different angle on that. I still believe that the spirit of love that comes from Source that is responsible for creating everything, was able to permeate my, even through my misspeaking about things I thought were truth, I think that love energy came through, and that was what was transformational. Not any kind of, you know, theology or doctrinal message that stuck with him. He really, I think, gravitated towards the love message of, you are loved the way you are, and your future is only going to be bliss and joy. So his last day on this earth was February 29th, 2012, but he had gone to the emergency room just a few hours earlier. So for quite some time leading up to this, he again was so off schedule with his sleep and his waking hours, and he had been advised many times to not use an indwelling catheter for urinating. So he went against the doctor's advice and would leave it in at night when he was sleeping and the problem was that his sleep schedule was so messed up that he would often sleep for 20 hours plus, sometimes even longer, very fitfully, but he would just be trying to sleep for extended periods of time. And what happened is his catheter got backed up and everything began to damage his body and back up in his body, and he became septic. So when he woke up, he couldn't feel his hands very well at all, and he just felt really odd. And so he called my mom and said, something's really wrong. So that was when they took him to the hospital and they had run some tests and figured out he was septic and that his urine had backed up and was creating all these problems. So they were trying to aggressively get antibiotics in him and treat him. And when they were treating him on the table, they asked him to sit up 
And as soon as he sat up, he immediately said, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, and then he died. And they spent the next hour trying to revive him, but to no avail. And so I'd gotten a call from my mom again just saying, you know, he's in the hospital. Typical thing for him at that point. I was just sort of, I wasn't thinking he was going to die. I was thinking they'll take care of it, he'll get released, and we'll go through this again soon. And, And I hated it for him. But then when it was his death, it was just both a, it was so much pain, but just the slightest tinge initially of, thank God. Thank God he's finally free, man. What a... What an absolute shit show the last seven years of his life have been. Seven or eight years. I can't even remember now what the time frame was. But now I feel like that just punctuates how much bliss he experienced after that. Like, our pain here is only multiplying our joy back home. That I trust. But it's it's not that there's no point to it. We have to learn from it. We have to realize why repeating the same fascination with ego and empowering the wrong kind of elements of us is a step backwards in our growth. And while we're never ever going to be damned to any negative experience forever, we're all going back home eventually. We're all working through it at our different paces. And so I don't know that my brother really found his true north and enlightenment here. I think there were some moments he did. Often for him it was going out in the woods and taking psilocybin mushrooms and connecting with God that way. He would say, I connect to God in nature. I find God in the forest. And you know what? At the time, I thought, mm, he's just hallucinating, and it feels nice, and that's that's cool and all, but it's not real. Now I, I think I know better. I think that while I don't say psilocybin is just a direct connection to truth, it is a sort of dissolving of the certainty of this material world. It kind of helps you peel back the layers of consciousness and this artificial reality we've created like anything it has ups and downsides depending on how you use it and for him though he found the most therapeutic method for him was going out in nature and taking mushrooms a couple months before his accident he had really started to make some big lifestyle changes that was something he did echo after the accident was why would god punish me for trying to improve my life he had quit smoking pot for a few months just to kind of get a little reset. I don't think he was drinking really any alcohol, so that's probably part of the reason when he had the accident, it might have affected him a little more than it normally would have because he didn't drink as much, and he was he had lost weight. He was getting healthier. There were a lot of positive changes in his life leading up to the wreck, and it does feel like, why? Why? And certainly why God would you do that? punishment because he wasn't following the Bible. I know there were people who believed that. I don't know if they would say it to me, but... So I don't have answers. I don't know why he suffered the way he did. I don't know why his life was so filled with pain. Other than that, I trust now that on the other side of that is even more advancement than maybe someone who had a very cushy, easy life. And I don't know that we grow that much from having things just handed to us and no real struggles or challenges. And basically, we're, we're trying to emulate home. We're trying to bring the peace and safety of home here, but we also need to embrace that this, isn't, this realm isn't for our peace and safety. It's for an experience. The physical body is not our home ever. Just a vessel, just a teacher. 
it's okay to make friends with it and to and to integrate it and enjoy it but if we get too attached to the ego idea that this is our home this is our body is the real thing we disconnect from the true creative power of who we really are as a spirit that was crafted in the exact image of its source but with within that the uniqueness and individuality of our own personalities that we get to articulate and extend through this whole experience twisting our way through all the d- illusions of it but but we still are we're still exerting the spirit of our source into this artificial construct to create a new reality that will be richer and more detailed and beautiful than what we what we had originally and this is again my understanding my interpretation not gospel truth not truth with a capital t and it's not really something that i feel like i need to debate with anybody because it's not really up for debate it's up to interpretation right now and then eventually it will be up to our ability to completely see it as it is but right now we're just sort of toiling with these slivers of understanding not going too far down that rabbit trail want to get back to my brother so after he died i was very sad and grieving and i remember having this very vivid dream more vivid than probably any dream i've had where we were in this stone cathedral that looked like it was out of romeo and juliet flowers everywhere surrounding my brother laying peacefully on this table, looking like the best version of himself. And I remember so distinctly that as I was sitting there in this chapel, with all these flowers and candles, watching my brother resting peacefully on the table, I thought, man, I just want to see him walk again. I just want to see him be whole. And as soon as I had that thought, he sat up and just had all of this just love pouring out of his eyes. He sat up and he started walking towards me and I believe we embraced and he said, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm fine. And I think that was the extent of the dream, but it was so powerful and yet I didn't believe it at the time. I just thought it was wishful thinking. I didn't didn't think dreams had any significance beyond just our mind throwing together a random concoction of the subconscious. It still feels like that to me at times. Most of my dreams feel disconnected and chaotic, but... That one was very distinct. And I do believe now that that was my brother's soul reaching through the ether. Because in our dreams, we are in a different reality. We are actually accessing the astral plane, I think. And so there's a little more potential for the soul to come through and reach us in those places than it is when we're deeply entrenched in this matrix. So I saw him in that dream, and I believed fully that Maybe not at the time, but now I believe fully that he really was expressing himself to me in a true and direct way. And that I trust now he is absolutely better off than any of us are here. My brother was a singular, unique, and beautiful human being who I miss every day. Who I still have to unhook some of the pain and trauma from how I view myself and how I look at the world, but... Without that contrast, I don't know that I would have the richness of perspective that I do now and the ability to more accurately discern and, I guess I should say, I don't know if my filter would be as harsh and strict as it is now. And sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes it's a bad thing. Sometimes I overanalyze things to death because I'm looking for all the negative sides because I don't want to be fooled by it. 
and then I squeeze all the joy and life out of it. So there is a downside for sure to kind of honing in on maybe the underbelly to a situation. But there's a part of me that sees the value in someone pointing that out. Maybe that's how I justify myself, but there are times where I've been told even by coworkers, well, we kind of need a, a cynic in the room. We kind of need an asshole to point out maybe the things that the over-optimist were missing. And so it's all about balance. We're all here to balance each other, to learn from those different perspectives. None of them are really better or more right than another, but there are ideas that are born from spirit and ideas born from ego. And it's really our job to sort out that dualistic nature of our reality here because the ego is screaming, clamoring for attention like a circus monkey on PCP, where the spirit is just this still, strong, consistent current running through everything that you know deep down is the way you should be, the way you should treat others and view the world. But it's really hard sometimes to tune into that frequency when you have this super loud circus monkey clattering in your ears. And I know for my brother, he didn't really have the luxury of, of being exposed to that idea that your mind is not who you are, that this chaotic stream of energy is not actually defining your true value or worth. You know, it could just be a reflection of many experiences you've had as a soul going from body to body and having all of these different profound experiences, but it's not really for me to say what makes what happen here. I don't understand all of the elements that concern what bodies we choose, what situations we choose, what lessons we think we need to learn. That's not really for our monkey, man-ape brains to figure out. We'll know all of that as soon as we leave these bodies. All of the illusion will be stripped away. Actual true knowledge, which is just inherently empirically true, it's the knowledge of the base code for creating this entire thing and the, the knowledge from source, that's unalterable. It doesn't change through perception and understanding. It's just our perspectives that alter and the ego's approach to knowledge that makes it so fluid, subjective, and different. So I'm trusting that my brother is absolutely kicking ass and having a great time, and I'm the one here still trying to figure out heads or tails, and he's probably there trying to give me little breadcrumbs or pieces to grab onto. I, I still think our families are rooting us on from the astral, from the soul plane, from wherever they're at. They're watching our lives. They know what's going on, and they they want to see us resonate with love and that love for self, that reinvigoration of that I am not only worthy and capable, but I have the answers within me. And I really wish my brother had been given that message that, dude, you already have the keys within yourself to unlock the mystery of why all this pain even exists, why you're suffering through this. You might not get all the answers, but you'll get so many more fulfilling insights when you start to release that fear of death, that fear of lack, that fear of not being truly secure and safe. This life throws a lot of crazy shit in our direction to be afraid of, to be terrified of, and to just lose our hope over. It's everywhere. It's at every corner if you choose to tune into it. But we absolutely have the choice to start creating filters in our minds and our hearts of what we're going to tune into. And we can actively speak against, pray against, whatever. 
that I do not want this energy to be consistently influencing me. I fully reject that energy from controlling my life. And it takes time. It takes a lot of affirmations and speaking these things out and feeling them. It's not just a magic trick that happens overnight. It's about a pattern of believing that you are beyond the bullshit and that you will have the answer. And while my brother didn't have that while he was here, he has it now and there is no lack in him or no need for repentance or salvation because we already inherently possess that because the Holy Spirit and God is within every single thing that is here. It, it doesn't accurately reflect God or source, but it's allowed by source. So, so it's about reframing your perspective and seeing everything as holy and divine because it would be impossible to exist without the divinity of source to let that love energy create everything. Again, it doesn't need, need to mean it endorses the spirit of source by existing. It's just a reflection of the creative capabilities. So we can still see God in everything without equating it exactly to the fullness of God. But that's hard for us because that, that means we got to put a judgment on it, right? we got to put a restriction or, well, it's that's kind of God, but not really. So for me, it's more helpful just to look at everything and go, that's just God, this cup, this straw. That's just God being reflected in this comically small object compared to its immensity. But And that's really challenging with negative situations to go, that's just God allowing all things to exist for us to learn from, not because God wants to exert evil and darkness. That's our choice to create. God's just there going, and forget the word God and use whatever term you want. It doesn't matter he or she to me. You know, those are all very humanistic needs to ascribe a gender to source because source embodies all all energies of, of every shade of gender and sexuality and all of that. Because again, if source is all things, then we have to look at all things as divine in a certain way. But that also helps us filter out where things are operating from a lower vibration and where we need to discern between ego and spirit. But this has a lot less to do with my brother, so I think I should back off that idea for the time being. I just say all this because I want, I wish that my brother had more access to that information and that he was seeking it out. But again, he just had gotten so stuck in these loops of negativity and chaos and I hated that that was his daily life, but I'm so thankful now that he is free, he's home, and even if I'm dead wrong and he's dead and that's it and we don't get to see each other again, that's all right. I don't mind holding on to the false hope that my dream was real and that my beliefs about us never dying are are real. And if I'm wrong, then guess who gets to deal with the brunt of that? Me. So who cares? Let me be wrong. Just like I can let you be wrong, just like we can all let each other be wrong, because there is no need to truly get it right in this life. We're not going to understand the fullness of what we really are. We're only getting glimpses of it. But the more we try and ask for that knowledge and revelation, I think the more streams our way and the more we fill in those gaps. And the more you can kind of release fear and just say, I don't need to let these circumstances control me anymore. So my brother's life was all about a very long roller coaster ride with fear, pain, and rejection. And I've learned so much from him. But my prayer, of course, is that he doesn't have to come back and repeat a bunch of more painful experiences. That was also a profoundly 
huge learning experience for him and that his next journey will be from the heart and with love and joy as his guidepost. And I pray that for all of us, that we all awaken rapidly to the love that is inside of us. It was put there by source, but it was also put there to remind us that we have the fullness of source within us. So we might as well look at ourselves as equal. And again, not in the way that your ego wants to do it, to lord and control and dominate, but to spread love beyond your comprehension to every corner and allow all things to be as they are and knowing that they're going to organize back towards that light. They're going to gravitate back towards that home energy. They might want to go out and play in the mud for a while, but you get tired of playing in the mud because your clothes are dirty and you know you start to just feel uncomfortable because everything's caked up and wet and nasty. So we all get to go play in the mud as long as we want, but we're all going to come right back to the bath of pure love and joy. Have I gotten corny or cheesy enough yet? Have I gotten a little too hokey and cheese volley? Because I know I'm coming across very evangelical here. But when I think about my brother's life, it's just it, it brings up a lot of the past and that need to find hope in dark situations, but also what I believe is the poetic nature to our darkness, that it achieves something in us that is far more transcendent and incredible than we could possibly understand, so that no pain here is wasted. And every traumatic experience you've had in your life will be filtered out at the atonement that we're all going to. Every single living, breathing, conscious soul is going towards the atonement on our own pace, at our own time, but you cannot be separate from yourself, which is a part of source. It's just not possible. You don't have to believe that, but believe me that I believe it. And if I'm proven dead wrong, I'll run with that too. I'm always open to changing my mind. I'm always open to expanding my current understandings and owning up to where I'm limited and wrong. So that's all I got for this long-winded episode. Michael, I love you. I miss you. But I know that I will see you really soon and that our reunion will be more transcendently sweet than I can possibly ever imagine. Thank you for listening to this special episode. I appreciate your time, your heart, and just go out there and even if you can add a fraction of love to your day and the way that you treat yourself and other people, do that just a little bit at a time. It'll become a habit. It'll become something you crave. Don't force it. Don't do it because someone else told you. Ask yourself why that's important. Ask yourself why it's important for you to vibrate with love and not fear. Just start asking a lot of things of yourself and and wait for time for the answer. Don't expect immediate answers. Don't expect the first thing that your mind pops out to be the truth or the answer. Your ego is going to want to try and intercede there and give you a whole bunch of nonsense. Take your time, meditate, ask these questions, and just listen. Listen for that quiet part of you that's that gut part of you that's telling you you know what's right here. You know what is resonant and good. All right, if you have anything you'd like to contribute, feedback, you want to come on the show and share your story or whatever, you have the keys, 639 at gmail.com. You can also check me out on Instagram. You are the one you seek is the handle. And please don't forget that the world is not happening to you. The world is happening for you. Go in love and namaste. Namaste.